Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org. And now a message from The Rock of Gainesville. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hector. I'm one of the pastors here at The Rock of Gainesville. And this morning is a real treat for me. I'm usually on that rotation of speakers when Pastor George uh, is out of town. But it's a treat for me to have Pastors George and Suzanne here as I open up God's Word and share it with you. Come on, give it up for Pastor George and Pastor Suzanne. I'm so grateful to be here with you. I'm thankful for the opportunity to open up God's Word. There's something about the Word of God that changes people's lives. It changes people's trajectory. It is infused with power. And I hope you've come ready to hear the Word of God. So let me pray and we will begin. Father, in Jesus' name, your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You challenge us to remember that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. We know that all scriptures are inspired by you, and so we approach you now ready to be satisfied in your presence. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said amen, amen, and amen. All right, guys, I want to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to put this down in case it's going to fall off. Um, Before we jump into our main text, I want to provide you with a background text that I think will help us better appreciate the text that we're going to spend most of our time in today. And here's that background text. It's found in Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 39, and it says this. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. So that's just the background verse for us. I want you to... Keep that in the back of your mind as we continue to move forward in our time together today. We're going to spend our time in the book of Hebrews. But before we jump into Hebrews, specifically chapter 9, I want to give you some general details about the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews was written to encourage and speak to the hearts of Jewish believers who had converted out of Judaism into the followership of Jesus Christ. This author knew that their hearts were troubled, their hearts were heavy, and their hearts had started to grow weary in well-doing. And so this book aims to encourage them, and I hope that it encourages us, because correct me if I'm wrong, we too can grow weary in well-doing. And so I hope that this study encourages you. Here's another tidbit of information about the book of Hebrews. So these new Christians were wrestling with the reality that their Christ-filled experience was not living up to their Christ-centered expectation. You see, the thrill of that inaugural salvific moment in Christ, that moment has begun to fade. And now they're wrestling with the day-to-day drudgery of keeping the faith, and the day-to-day drudgery is beginning to overshadow that moment. And so this new way was hard. This new way was hard for these early church believers, and some of them were beginning to question if they bought into the right thing. Some of them were even being drawn back to the allure of their former Jewish traditions. And here's why. Because we know that we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. The author of Hebrews is unknown, but we do know that it was written. Did I advance too far there? There it is. 
we do know that it was written in the first century. Okay, specifically from the language therein, we can tell that the book of Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by Roman military commander Titus, who would later go on to become the emperor of Rome in 79 AD. And that's more information than you asked for this morning. But there it is. So that context tells us a very specific lens through which we can look at the book of Hebrews. In fact, it actually causes us to somewhat sympathize and empathize with these new Christians. You see, even though the gospel was spreading, right, and the early church was expanding, and the apostles were scattering into Judea, Samaria, and the outer parts of the, wor- of the world beginning new works, we have to keep in mind that for most people in that region, it was business as usual. For most people, especially those who did not believe, it was back to business as usual. You have to remember that Jesus gathered large crowds, but he only had a small number of true disciples. So when the spectacle of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, when that spectacle passed, it was back to business as usual. Jerusalem continued to be occupied by Romans. And the great and glorious temple... That temple still stood for another 37 years after Jesus died. You guys following me? It was back to business as usual, especially for devout Jews, right? The temple was still the center of worship for them. Sacrifices were being made. Offerings were continued to be lifted up. And these new Christians... They were being pressed on all sides by the reality of all these things that are continuing to go on and didn't immediately change. And they're beginning to wonder, did we even buy into the right thing? Their experience with God was not matching up to their expectation with God. And some of you, can really, ultim- can really almost immediately see the similarities between what they experience and the similarities to our present-day culture. The experience is not matching up with the expectation. We're growing weary in well-doing. Things are not immediately changing, or at least changing at a rate of time that we would prefer. Some of you are faithful, week in, and week out, and that's absolutely beautiful and necessary. You're checking the box of attendance. You're checking the box of service. You're checking the box of community. But in the stillness of your mind, when you are alone, some of you are wondering, what's this all about? What's this all about? Are we to look to the holidays and get through the holidays and then call 2022 done and then enter into 2023 and then rinse and repeat all that we have done? Is that it? What's this all about? Those sentiments were real sentiments that these Hebrews related with. But I have good news for you today, friends. There's more. There's more. There's more. There's more. There's more to enjoy. There's more to discover. There's more to relish in. There's more to represent. And here's why. Because we are called to be a people of the presence. We are called to be a people of the presence. There is more to be had. So here's our main point for us today as we look into Hebrews. 
All right, just advance it for me if it delays. Here's our main point. God uses the old to point to the new to get to you. God uses the old to point to the new to get to you. Keep that in the back of your mind in addition to that background verse. I'm making you work today. As we look at the book of Hebrews. So let's read Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So here, the author is causing us to reflect on a main feature, a major feature, I should say, a major feature of the old covenant, and that was the tabernacle. And for those of you who are not familiar with the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a makeshift portable tent that God had Moses and the Israelites build and use during their entire 40-year stay in the wilderness after he delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Now, I want you to notice how the tabernacle was oriented once the entire camp of Israel was set up. Take a look at this picture. So you see there in the middle, the thing that is not color-coded, that's the tabernacle. It was fenced in. There was this outdoor courtyard. And then right there in the middle was the tent of meeting. But the whole rectangle there is uh, the tabernacle. And you can see how three million Jews situated themselves around the tabernacle. They separated themselves out into their distinctive and respective tribes. But even... When they marched to new lands, that tabernacle stayed in the center. You see, it was customary that no one would build or put up their family tent with their backs toward the tabernacle. The the tabernacle was always at the center of the camp. And when they struck the camp and they had to go to new distant lands, even in the procession, the components of the tabernacle were kept in the middle, in the center of that procession. And all of this was because the tabernacle was a place of significance. The tabernacle was a place of reverence. The tabernacle was the very place where the presence of Yahweh, the living God, would come down and rest upon. That's why it was central. And hear me, friends. The centrality of the presence of God was critical then, and it's still critical now. It's still critical. It's absolutely paramount that we keep the presence of God at the center of our lives. In fact, the presence of God fits nowhere else but the center of your life. So if... Something else, your marriage, your business, your children, your career, if anything else is at the center of your life, it is as if you have set up your tent with your back to the presence of God. So listen to how important the presence of God is. This is what Moses said to God in Exodus 33, verse 15. He said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us. 
In my translations, if you ain't going, we ain't going either. Here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. If the joy is full in his presence, where else are you going to go? What other joy do you need? If in his presence, there's fullness of joy, his presence is all that we need. And then... John, the apostle, wrote this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. In the original Greek, that word dwelt there is the word skenao. Skenao. And it means tabernacled. And the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Powerful. But there's more to the tabernacle. Let's take a closer look at the tent of meeting. So as we look at the tent of meeting, even though his presence was on the entire tent of meeting, his presence was more focused in the most holy place. Right, We read earlier in Hebrews that there were two rooms that were separated by a curtain. And it was a thick, luxurious, ornately designed curtain. And the room in the front, the first room, was called the holy place. And then the room behind the curtain, the second room, that was called the most holy place. And that's where the presence of God focused itself, in the most holy place, specifically on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God spoke to Moses regularly. Here we read in Exodus chapter 25, God talking to Moses and giving him all the construction instructions for how to build the tabernacle. He says to Moses, I will meet you there. And talk to you from above the atonement cover. That was the top of the box. Okay? The atonement cover between the gold cherubim. There are these two angels, these little figurines that had their wings pointed toward the center of the seat. Okay? So the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people, for the people of Israel. That's where the presence of Yahweh, the living God, met with the ancient Israelites. It was the most holy place. Moses went in there regularly. But the high priest, he only went in there once a year. It was called the Day of Atonement. Or the Jewish people referred to it as Yom, Yom Kippur. It was to go in there and to atone for all the sins of the people. They even wrapped a rope around his ankle. He had bells at the bottom of his, of his clothes. And if the other priest didn't hear the bells anymore, something happened. That high priest's heart went right. And when you go into the holy presence of God, not right, things happen. So now we know that the presence of God rested on the Ark of the Covenant. And so what intrigued me about Hebrews chapter 9 is because it helps us to answer this question. Well, what's inside the Ark? What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? Right? And people who are somewhat familiar, have some kind of Bible knowledge, they will quickly tell you that the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets that God wrote the Ten Commandments on with his own finger, those stone tablets were kept inside the box. And they would be right, partially. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, or the end of verse 4, it says this. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So I don't know about you, but uh, they kind of sound important, right? They kind of sound significant. These sacred artifacts were special. 
And so since we are called to be a people of the presence, let's take a closer look at each one to see if they would speak to us today. Amen? Let's dive in. First up, manna. A jar containing manna. And I'm going to go ahead and just give you the principle up front right after each artifact. Here's the principle when we look at manna. To be a person of the presence, you must be a person of generosity. To be a person of the presence, you must be a person of generosity. You see, manna was a symbol of God's faithful provision to his people. It was a symbol of his generosity. You see, back in the book of Exodus, just 30 days, 30 days after the Israelites left Egypt, they ran out of food. And they were grumbling and complaining, dreaming about being back in Egypt, eating from pots full of meat and loads of breads, and their stomachs were turning, and they were complaining. And you better believe that they let Aaron and Moses know about it. Well, God, in his goodness and his grace and his mercy that we are all thankful for, he hears their cry and he generously and miraculously provides for them. Let's read it here in Exodus 16, chapter 16, verse 14 through 15. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, it is the food the Lord has given you to eat. And now the Israelites, a few verses down in this same chapter, they end up calling it manna, which the literal Hebrew translation for the word manna is the phrase, what is it? <laughs> How many of you know that sometimes your miracle comes in what is it form? Sometimes God's miracle to us in our lives comes in ways that we don't expect it. But just because we don't initially understand it doesn't mean that God has not faithfully provided it. So another thing that I love about this manna imagery is that if we read further, we go down into the text, right? We discover that the erroneous idea that manna is bread that fell from heaven, that idea gets chucked out the window simply because we've read our Bible. Let's read it together a little bit further down. It says this in verse 31. Israelites called its name manna. It was like coriander seed. Coriander seed. That's the farthest thing from bread. What are you talking about? Have you seen a coriander seed? All, all the cooks in the house said yes. But what I want you to see is that this miracle provision from the presence of God did not come in bread form. It came in seed form. The Israelites then had to take God-given wisdom to work that seed, to mill that seed into a fine powder, to mix that fine powder with water and oil, and then watch it rise as they baked it. You see, this generous miracle was a seed. And that means the miracle seed contained the potential to become something full of life, full of sustenance, but it first had to be worked. It had to be worked. It had to be worked into something life-giving. And some of you need to hear this today. 
There is a vast difference between needing and needing. See what I did there? There's a vast difference between needing and needing. You see, there was a time when you cried out for more independence. There was a time when you cried out for more direction. There was a time where you cried out for a spouse. There was a time when you cried out for children. There was a time when you cried out for a job. There was a time when you cried out for a church family to walk with you and God has generously given you your miracle fully expecting you to work it. Fully expecting you to work it. To work it. You see, friends, God's generous presence has come to rest on us to partner with us so that we together might produce something life-giving. God's gift to you is the seed. Your gift back to God is working with him to produce something that gives life. Something that gives life. You see, God's presence, it rests on those moments where we generously give something life-giving to someone else. You guys are following me, right? God's presence rests on those moments. You know what moments I'm talking about. When you produce something life-giving and you share it with someone else, God's presence rests on that moment. There's peace in that moment. There's joy in that moment. There's gratitude in that moment. There's, those moments are hard to describe. Because God's presence rested on those moments. And as the people of the presence, we are called to be generous. Now, generosity is not limited to money, even though that's nice, right? Let's be honest. It's nice. But some of you need to venture down the bakery aisle of God's grocery store, right? Smell the aromas, get inspired by God's loaves and recipes. What if there's someone in your life that would benefit from a loaf of kind words? How about a loaf of wisdom or a loaf of quality time or a real tasty one, a loaf of forgiveness? Generosity. Give someone a loaf. All you married folks, maybe a loaf of love. <laughs> hey now, keep it PG, PG says. <laughs> all the men in here are like, yes, PH, my boy. <laughs> and all the ladies are like, well, technically, you can define love in a variety of ways. And they would be right. Right, gentlemen? They would be right. They would be right. But truthfully, God has called us to be a people of the presence. And in order to do that rightly, we must be generous to others. Just as he has been generous to us. And that takes work. Amen? That takes work. But God has supplied us with all the grace that we need to work it. Amen? So let's be about it. All right, second artifact. Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves. Here's the principle. To be a person of the presence, you must be a person of purpose. To be a person of the presence, you must be a person of purpose. So a little later on in their time in the wilderness, there arose another time... Surprise, surprise. Where the children of Israel again began to complain about Moses and Aaron. They did not have an enviable job. They complained about those two guys all the time. 
But by this point, some of the Levites, actually a few hundred of them, you know, they were a little bit more established in their priestly duties. You know, they were kind of feeling themselves. They had grown knowledgeable about the priestly roles that they were called to fulfill. And they started murmuring amongst one another and they say, hey, why do Moses and Aaron get to lead all the time? We know what we're doing. We think we can do a better job. So it got a little bit ugly after that. And I'll spare you the details. But in Numbers 17, God comes up with a final idea to settle the matter. Let's read Numbers 17, beginning in verse 1 through 8. It says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring you 12 wooden staffs, one from each leader of Israel's ancestral tribes, and inscribe each leader's name on his staff. Inscribe Aaron's name on the staff of the tribe of Levi, Levi, for there must be one staff for the leader of each ancestral tribe. Place these staffs in the tabernacle in front of the ark containing the tablets of the covenant where I meet with you. Buds will sprout on the staff belonging to the man I choose. Then I will finally put an end to the people's murmuring and complaining against you. So Moses gave the instructions to the people of Israel, and each of the 12 tribal leaders, including Aaron, brought Moses a staff. Moses placed the staffs in the Lord's presence in the tabernacle of the covenant. When he went into the tabernacle of the covenant the next day, he found that Aaron's staff, representing the tribe of Levi, had sprouted, budded, blossomed, and produced ripe almonds. Woo! You got you to hear what we just read. God took a dead stick and caused life to spring forth from it. You see, that life, that life speaks of favor. It speaks of purpose. It speaks of authority. And that's what we find in his presence. And I want you to know let me advance to our next point. Here it is. It is the unmerited favor of God in your life that causes you to blossom. I'll say it again. It is the unmerited favor of God in your life that causes you to blossom. It's the unmerited favor of God in your life that causes you to bear fruit. It's the unmerited favor of God in your life that causes you to walk in authority. So we have to ask the question, how do we blossom? You got to be laid out in the presence of God. You got to be laid out before the presence of God just as Aaron's staff was. It was laid out in the presence of God. Of God. That's the place where you find favor. Favor. Some of you want the favor of God without the presence of God. I'm here to tell you that's not going to work. That's not going to work. I mean, we'll, we'll acknowledge some common grace. We'll acknowledge the fact that God has likely gifted you and talented you with skills that are above average, but hear me, that's only going to take you so far. Only going to take you so far. See, because it is the supernatural favor of God that causes us to blossom in a way that causes us to leave fruit that remains. You see, when God bestows his favor on you, you have to be willing to obey what he speaks. You see, his call is a signature feature in our lives. 
We're supposed to take his favor. We're supposed to take the authority that it comes with. And we're supposed to confidently walk in our purpose. Some of you are shy about your purpose. God calls you to be set apart. To walk confidently in your call. Why? Because God gave it to you. Walk confidently in your purpose. And that purpose has been specifically reserved for you and for no one else. Aaron's purpose was for him to lead the Levitical priesthood. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is different from Aaron's. And it reminds us of how we need each other. See, because I can't walk out God's purpose on your life any more than you can walk out God's purpose in my life. God's purpose is personal. Our purpose is personal because our God is personal. When you go into the presence of the Lord, God's purpose revealed to you will be personal. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You were born for such a time as this specific purpose specific purpose that only you can fulfill and so it's a reminder that we need each other and that's what we find in his presence right that's why we must be confident to walk in our call confident in your purpose why because it's yours it's your purpose you got to be confident to walk out your purpose, which is to you from God, period. See, if we are called to be a people of the presence, we must confidently walk in purpose. Okay, last artifact. Last but not least, this sacred artifact in the Ark of the Covenant was the stone tablets. The stone tablets of the covenant. And here's our principle. Our principle. Sounds like principle. To be a person of the presence, you must be a person of the word. You knew that was coming. To be a person of the presence, you must be a person of the word. We read in Exodus chapter 31. When the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, written by the finger of God. And what we need to internalize as we read that text is that the word of God, his word to us, his children, his creation, his word to us is very personal because he wrote it with his own hand. Do you see that? His word is personal. And actually, it's even more than that. We read in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning the word already existed. The word was with God and the word, that's right, the word was God. So we see clearly that valuing the word is equivalent to valuing his presence. They are the same. They go hand in hand. You cannot separate the two. The two are inseparable. And that call to value his word in such a way is on each of us as individuals and on all of us corporately. We must value the word of God because we cannot be presence-driven people if we are not word-focused people. You hear me, church? We cannot be presence-driven people if we are not word-focused people. You can't do it. Cannot do it. And so, we look to the word. We look to the word because in the word, we discover more about who God is. And in the word, we discover more about who we are in God. The word is priceless. It is a priceless treasure. It is a treasure buried in a field 
that when a treasure hunter went and found it, he dug it back up, he left and sold everything that he had to go and purchase the field. The word is like a pearl of great value. When a merchant looking for costly pearls finds this pearl of great value, he goes home, sells everything he has to come back and purchase the pearl of great value. This is the word of God. It is invaluable. This is a priceless treasure. This is a priceless treasure and it has been made available to you. You see, the word is critically important. It's absolutely critically important and God knew it. God knew that his word was critically important. That's why he prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah Back in chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, the Lord says, The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will be like the one I made, this, excuse me, this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's why it's critically important. That's why he prophesied it. The word is critically important. And we gotta ask ourselves, how's that gonna happen? How's that gonna happen? You remember the background verse that I gave you at the beginning? Mark 15. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the Son of God. You see, God made a way himself for all who would call upon the name of Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, who would believe in their hearts that he is both Lord and Savior that Jesus is the better tabernacle, that Jesus is the better high priest, that Jesus is the better sacrifice. God made a way for that curtain in the temple, the curtain that separated the very presence of God from his people. God made a way for that curtain to be torn down. Torn down. Torn down. He did that. So that his presence would be finally and fully poured out on all of us who believe. God gave us full access to his presence. Do you see it? Full access to his presence. There is no longer a separation between God and man. His word rushed forth from that box. His favor rushed forth from that box. His generous provision rushed forth from that box. And for that, we can't thank him enough. We just can't thank him enough. The presence of God has been poured out of the most holy place of the tabernacle into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, into our spirits. Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you. He also said in John 14, verse 23, we will come and make our home with each of them. This is what it's all been about. For God to be our God and for us to be his people. A people of the presence. 
a people that recognize that God used the old to point to the new to get to you, to you, to me, to you, to get to us. Last slide. I know I've given you a lot of slides. The curtain has been broken because you have been chosen to be the location of his habitation. Y'all didn't expect a little poetry this morning. I like that. The curtain has been broken because you have been chosen to be the location of his habitation. We have full access, friends. Full access. In his presence, we find generous provision. In his presence, we find purpose. And in his presence, we find the power of his word. So we embrace it. We cherish it. We relish the presence of God. And we're also called, hear me, to represent the presence of God. We owe it to the next generation coming up behind us. You see, they don't want dead, old, boring stories. They don't want theological talking points that are void of the Spirit. They want fresh manna. They want favored blossoms. They want the freedom that comes from the power of His Word. That's what the next generation needs. That's what they want. And you, my friend, are a vessel of the presence. Because we are called to be a person of the presence. And as people of the presence, we can change the atmosphere. We can change the atmosphere. See, if you bring the presence, and I bring the presence, and she brings the presence, and he brings the presence, and you bring the presence, and you bring the presence, and you bring the presence, guess what? I believe we can change the atmosphere. We could change the atmosphere of doubt. We could change the atmosphere of fear. We could change the atmosphere of indifference. We don't have to rinse and repeat. We could change the atmosphere. Are you willing? As the people of the presence, imagine. People can walk in here and tears of peace and tears of joy can burst out of people's eyes. Healing can hit their bodies and deliverance can rush into their soul. Why? Because they encounter the presence of God. The presence of God that was once separated behind a curtain in the most holy place has now been poured out on us by the blood of Jesus. So I want to ask you to do something. If you want to be an atmosphere changer, I want to ask you to stand and raise your hands or remain seated and raise your hands up to you. If you want to be an atmosphere changer because you know that you are called to be a person of the presence, I believe that the Holy Spirit has given me a word to decree over you if you are in agreement with that call. So raise your hands if this speaks to you. And I will decree these words over you. I decree by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. Lord God, your presence rested on a symbol of generosity. Your presence rested on a symbol of purpose. Your presence rested on a symbol of your word. I hereby stand as a witness that each of these are humbly willing to be carriers of your presence. Grace them, Lord, to walk in generosity toward one another, to walk in fruitful purpose with one another, to walk in the power of your eternal word. We understand that these three are non-negotiable for your presence. 
if we're slacking in one or possibly two or possibly all three, we ask for your forgiveness and for the grace to improve. We are driven by a desire to be a people of your presence because we are heeding that call here and now in this moment that you have ordained. Fill us with your presence and because of it, change the atmosphere wherever we go for your glory and the joy of everyone around us. In Jesus' mighty name, I declare these words over your people. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Hallelujah! Yes! Bless you, mighty God. Let me pray over you. And then we're going to worship a little more. We're going to meet you down front if you have any prayer needs. We want to link our faith with your faith. If you don't know this Jesus that we're talking about today, the, the presence that changes people's lives, I want to invite you to join with one of these prayer team partners down front and have them lead you in a prayer of salvation. So prayer team, why don't you come down? Let me declare a blessing over you and we will look to wrap up our time together. Father, in Jesus' name, we are so grateful for you. We are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for your presence. Your presence changes us. It molds us and shapes us and transforms us into the people that we were called, destined, and created to be. We are so grateful for your presence. And now, Lord, we ask that you would meet us here. Receive our praise once more. For all these prayer team partners and all the prayer needs that are coming forth, Lord, we're just declaring and speaking your presence is enough in all of these needs. For those, God, who do not yet know you, but you're tugging at their hearts, you're saying to them, I want to introduce you to this Jesus who tore the curtain from top to bottom. God, get them out of their seat. Have them take a step of faith to join one of these prayer team partners down front and be led in a prayer of salvation. Father, we are so grateful for you. Without you, we can do no good thing. We are grateful for you and we say thank you for this time together. In Jesus' mighty name, we declare and pray. Amen and amen and amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org.